The creation of an art museum changed a city and just as importantly started to redefine what the art world is in a more global and much more diverse and much more gender balanced way. Hi, welcome to next chapter, Museums of the Future. I'm Thomas Gerst and tonight at Chartered House, I will be joined by Director of Tate, Maria Balchaw, and Guggenheim Foundation Artistic Director, Nancy Spector from New York, to discuss the changing face of museums and their ambitions in terms of exhibitions for the future. Demographics are changing, cultures are changing, people are seeking a place where they can get offline, be in a space together, have a shared experience, and with art, it can be truly transformative. Welcome everybody, welcome to Shoreditch House. Um, the Soho House Art Collection is a very special thing. We've worked in partnership with artists for a number of years, nearly nine years now. And what's special about this art collection is that we work um, to really sort of support and create genuine partnerships with artists. We have nearly 3,000 things in the art collection now and it's growing and expanding all the time. So I'm in a very fortunate position to be the custodian of that collection around the world, but also to be adding to the collection and acquiring new work for our future sites. Um, and then I also have this other um, fabulous opportunity to try and create events like this. So um, BMW always do these brilliant events with Soho House. And since I've joined, um, I was already previously friends with Thomas Gerst, Dr. Thomas Gerst, Head of Cultural Engagement for BMW, our fabulous moderator. Um, and I thought, what can, well, I've got this amazing opportunity. Like, who do I really want to see speak? Um, and so I just couldn't think of anything better than having Maria and Nancy sat on the stage just chatting about this extraordinary position that we find ourselves in when we have these two really important people um, who are passionate and enthusiastically leading these museums and these institutions. So it's absolutely the icing on the cake that I can bring these people together and that we're able to host this. But for now, I'm going to leave you with Thomas Gerst in the driving seat. You both suggested that the best thing would be that I just throw things at you and then we just go right at it. So um, I'm going to jump right in in terms of what we want to talk about when it comes to the future. Um, Maria, um, you said, I think this year, you said you want to develop the Tate's reputation as the most adventurous and culturally inclusive gallery in the world. And with culturally inclusive, um, you meant young people, non-white audience, less well-educated and less affluent. How do you accomplish that on a daily business? With what initiatives? Um, I have a, a working example. Uh, so in the expanded Tate Modern, in um, the Blavatnik building on level five, there is a, a section of the, the art museum called Tate Exchange. It's uh, designed to be a home for artists and um, activists and thinkers and the idea of Tate Exchange is that it would be an invitation for people to come and do something, bring something themselves, and encounter something that an artist wants to explore with people, not on their own. So there's a large number of associates, more than 60 now, who all do different kinds of things that they want to share and explore. 
So Claire Toomey is um, the associate artist who's in there at the moment. And Claire has set up a factory. And it's a very seriously organised factory. There's a production line, there's a feedback mechanism, there's clocking in and clocking out. And there has been the most tremendous experiment about what humans would create with the aid of an artist in a factory that is about their creativity. And we have seen unprecedented numbers of people coming to want to work in our factory. And the many different kinds of associates that have come into that space have given us a space to explore what audiences want and need to be able to engage, and also what we are not currently providing. And um, we need to learn how to have a um, more expansive conversation. And artists in our spaces are showing us how we can do that, which is fabulous. I have some concrete examples as well. Uh, as Thomas mentioned, I spent time at the Brooklyn Museum. And if any of you know the Brooklyn Museum, it's deeply rooted in its community. And it was something that I, I almost apprenticed, if you will, you know, really trying to understand what that you know, means for a museum in terms of being welcoming to and responding programmatically to our audiences there. The Guggenheim has always had a very global footprint, which I, I very much believe in because I think global cultural exchange and transnationality is also extremely important and it wouldn't be something that we would shy away from, but this is an additive layer. So one of the things that we're working on right now since my return is a long-range exhibition program that really does expand our notions of our history, that speaks to different cultures, different um, neighborhoods in our city, drawn from our history, but you know, trying to find a way that would be uniquely Guggenheim to be able to attract uh, our local audience. Actually, the Guggenheim, because we're in a Frank Lloyd Wright building and it's landmarked and it's amazing, 60% of our visitors are tourists and they don't come back. So it's something that I've been really grappling with is how do we build uh, relationships with our city? And a very specific example is that you know many of you, I'm sure, are aware of the crisis that is happening in the United States right now, and that the polarization of thought and the inability of sides to be able to really come together in, with any kind of meaningful conversation. And we introduced um, something called the Summer of No, K-N-O-W. We were open for the first time on Tuesday nights. It was a summer Tuesday with an open bar and you know much more social and relaxed environment. And we brought together artists who cared deeply about issues, whether it was environmental or surveillance or race or cultural appropriation or online sexual harassment, and paired them with people who were in the trenches, if you will, doing the work on the ground, other lawyers or activists or teachers or journalists, and putting them together in conversation, and they didn't always agree. And what we wanted to do is create a safe space where people could question one another, share experiences, and it was in a cafe that was uh, quite small and intimate and allowed for a really broad, engaged conversation. And I was this was a real beta program. And I'm hoping that we will roll it out now in the coming months. And it can't be the summer of no, but we'll figure out another title. But it's, it's just that. It's providing, in addition to our exhibitions and our wonderful collections, a safe space for these courageous conversations that should take place. And if an art museum can provide that, 
where maybe a university can't or uh, an office can't, then I'm, I'm hoping really can, we can fill that role. I know what it takes to pull these things off within your institutions, and I think they're absolutely laudable. But let, let me go just one step further. You're both running museums, and the, museum, the future of the museums would also be linked to the future of those cities. You're in London, or you're not only, but you're running your biggest institution out of London, you're running yours out of, out of New York. Now, we know that the centrifugal forces of gentrification are happening while we speak. And you, you brought it up and you said 70% are tourists, but you certainly make laudable efforts to lure in you know, the audience in the city that is still there. But how long will that audience be there and what can you do to reach out to them? Well, we are very aggressively looking for funding to allow everyone under 18 to come in for free which will get at a really serious demographic, I think. Um, for instance, that kind of outreach is very, very important. Um, we have youth groups, teen advisors, uh, trying to very consciously um, attract an audience that is not necessarily the moneyed class. Unfortunately, in the United States, where there's very little federal funding and city funding. We are not a, a there's something called a CIG in, in New York City, which uh, there are museums which are funded by the cities, like the Metropolitan Museum or the Brooklyn Museum. Um, not enough, but it's something. But we're a private institution, so everything that we do, we have to raise. Um, but the effort is there, and we're trying to you know match our goals with those of corporations and private individuals and foundations because we recognize that exact problem. And I mean, we're doing the same. Uh, exhibitions cost to put on, and so they're ticketed so that we can manage to do that. Uh, Bob Tate will be launching a, a young members scheme based on what the young people that we work with say they want, which is actually not that they want everything for free, but they want to pay a very small amount so that they can come to all the exhibitions and they want to be part of a, a conversation. Actually, they want to have a data exchange with us, so they're part of a Tate family. And so a young member scheme, really important to me. But I think the question about London is even more pressing at the moment. And The Guardian asked me a question today. So what questions do you think artists should be asking today? And I said, where am I going to have my studio? Where will my creative community be? So it isn't even about our audiences. It's actually in cities like London and New York, mm -hmm. um, how we can keep artists in the city. So today at the Art Fair, the editor of the Evening Standard, our former chancellor, George Osborne, is championing the arts. And I'm really pleased to hear that. And so he's making a big focus in London's local newspaper that the arts is essential for the future of London. And Sadiq Khan at the mayor's office is, is making the same case. So culture is one of the pillars of his future strategy for London. But neither George Osborne nor Sadiq, sadly, control property values, which dictate who can live where. But what I am really heartened by um, since I've arrived is some amazing work that is going on across the London boroughs, um, especially in some of the bits that are still not the sexy bits, because you know, those of us that are older in the audience remember when no one came here, where we're sitting now, and now look at it. But um, the, the chief executive of Barking and Dagenham is saying, you know what, I've still got space and disused factories and there are brilliant studios. And he is making the case for Barking and Dagenham as the borough for artists. 
and um, the Mayor's Office are looking at how they can use planning laws to keep creative people and young people and those who are both audiences or creators. And I think if we don't do that, our cities won't live and they won't be the, the wonderful places that we want to have institutions like mine in. Just want to add, uh, you reminded me that uh, Mayor de Blasio, who's the mayor of New York City, just issued his first cultural plan. And the, uh, the real core of that plan is diversification. And he's requiring, it's a mandate, that institutions, cultural institutions, look toward diversification on every level, from board, staff, programming, audience development. And not that they're providing funds for that, as it were, but they are providing mentoring and workshops. But they did reach out to our city university system and created a pipeline fellowship program. So it's not as much about artists, which I agree with you, finding affordable places, but it's for people who would not otherwise think about having a career in a museum, that it's a viable option. So these are fellowships that would be paid for rather than the kind of typical museum internship, which usually goes to people who, who can afford to live in a very expensive city and work for free to train to work at a museum. So I'm very heartened by this. It's just being rolled out. And the Guggenheim is taking it very, very seriously and, and trying to figure out what we can do to change our staff makeup. And I mean, again, likewise at Tate, it's a really, really important thing. And I think for museums and galleries and the arts sector more broadly, the Arts Council of England, where Nick has gone on to be chairman, is really championing the importance of changing internally so that you can connect externally to a much wider constituency of people. You're both um, very much uh, championing the idea of performances. Is that something that you're also thinking could help um, increase the audience? When I think about performance, I think about performativity because that really speaks to participatory and durational art or immersive experiences for the audience created by the artist. And over the years, it's been fascinating to watch how our public engages with the Guggenheim, with the Frank Lloyd Wright building, and everything from our James Turrell, which was a spectacular installation with a very beautiful arcing form that changed colors and people were coming in droves and not leaving. And I think it was probably similar to Oliver Eliasson's weather project. And I, what I sensed in that or the Tino Segal project that I did, which was there were no objects in the museum. It was just conversational based uh, movement throughout the, the, the entire space that People were craving some kind of meaningful, community-based, coming together and having this shared experience. And I've been thinking a, lot, a great deal about that because the, in our museum, the, the architecture lends itself. It's unlike any other. You can be very aware of people around you as you go up the ramps. You can look behind you, see where you've come. You can look across. You can study people studying without really being distracted. It's just part of the flow and it's kind of, it's mesmerizing. And I think the best shows are the artists who are very uh, aware of that. So I think that the digital world is you know, obviously not going away and very important, but we can create these counter experiences 
certainly people take lots of pictures and the sort of Instagrammable spectacle-based art is what it is. But I'm not so interested in that. I'm interested in people spending time and being together and coming back and you know, allowing themselves to you know, be transported by what they're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that, Nancy. And I, mean, I also would say um, there is no doubt that audiences are keen to engage in a more event-based um, culture. And I think that's really there's really exciting possibilities about that. And it's not about turning the the museum into a space for a disco or a party. It's actually, as you said, about bringing people together for a different kind of sociality. And I'm very interested in the idea of time. A lot of the things that I've learned most from over the last ten years have been about the ways in which you could give permission for, or um, facilitate and encourage people giving themselves the luxury of several hours with smart. Because we're almost closing remarks, but I have one final question. And one thing that came to my mind, there is um, uh, Orhan Pamuk, who wrote that manifesto for future museums, uh, you know, the Turkish Nobel Prize literature uh, winner. And he said that, you know, that, 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 that museums should no longer be about the narrative of a nation, but they should be about the individual. Um, museums should be about... Um, humanism and museums should be uh, should be taking place within your own house and no longer in those huge structures which you both you know are in charge of but at the same time you were talking about you know other spaces you created pop-up spaces also I think that is all um, valid in terms of what people are thinking where museums can go in the future so I know this is somewhat of a stretch um, if you were to go into your own museum let's say the Guggenheim in New York or the Tate's but in 2027, like in 10 years' time, what would you encounter? And maybe we can end this on a utopian thought. <laughs> what I would hope that we see in 2027 is that um, the, the spaces that are Tate are being used by artists and used by audiences in ever more diverse and constructive ways. And so, you know, a plainer answer is that you would see more of more of Londoners in Tate, Britain and modern, more of Liverpool in Tate, Liverpool and you know, likewise St Ives, and that you would see more of the artists and art of the world in all four of those places, because it's in that dialogue and interchange that you are shaping open, democratic, um, experimental, sometimes perverse, uh, sometimes wonderful, sometimes... Um, challenging spaces and we need all of those things it goes back to my previous answer spaces for dissent creation thought play wonder beauty curiosity with lots of different people in them and still for free completely for free thank you <laughs> Your question made me think about uh, a project that I, I mentioned that I did with Tino Segal. It was actually on view here, if any of you had the chance to see it at the ICA London. Uh, it's called This Progress, and it was conversation-based, where people moved up through the ramps, having conversations first with a child, then with a teenager, then with a middle-aged person, and then a senior citizen, about the idea of progress. And what was not visible to the naked eye was this very complex dramaturgy in which behind the scenes people were informing the 
uh, what we called interpreters who were really the cast members who were having these conversations. And we had hundreds of these people. We had a whole community of them who volunteered over a six-week period. And what Tino said about this work is that it's an individual experience for the masses. So that every person who came to the museum had a unique experience and came away with feeling that they, did, they had been heard, that they had learned something, and that they were valued. And we actually had people in tears. It was quite remarkable. I actually made myself go out and be one of the cast members and talk to the audience because I, you know, as a curator, we're not often in that position. And it was terrifying, uh, fascinating, rewarding. But that, whatever that, um, that notion of, we all need huge attendance to, in order to exist. But how do we, we create a situation where every person who comes in feels that they're special? and that they're noted, and that whatever's on the wall speaks to them in one way, shape, or form. And that's kind of an impossible utopian, but that the, the, luckily our programs change. So if you come back again, it may be something that really does speak to your culture or your experience. Um, but then you understand that there's this generosity of, of programming and that um, other people are, are being moved at times maybe that you're not. So it sounds a little abstract, but that's my goal. Thank you very much. We, I wish you luck with those goals, and I think we all do. Um, are there any, now that Nancy and Maria are here, are there any questions from the audience? We have somebody right over there on the sofa. Um, I, I, in, in thinking about the future, one has to raise the question of technology. How do you feel in engaging with the broader community? Over a long term, you engage technology firms in a way that is a real dialogue between that kind of divide between full openness and curation, which is something technology companies are struggling with in pretty significant ways at the moment. We have a really amazing curator of architecture and digital initiatives who's thinking about these very questions. And at the Guggenheim, there's great uh, anticipation of where technology can bring us, but we are very cautious to not use it as an end in itself. So we really want to be careful when we start introducing certain things into the gallery. Uh, it, it should enable the experience of art or, or enhance it, not just being some gizmo type gimmicky, which we know we, we have seen. But we are actively uh, in conversation with you know, technological think tanks and people who are really anticipating the future I know a lot of museums, for instance, now are trying on VR, and we're jumping over VR. I'm sure the Tate is as well. We recognize it's a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and I mean, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. Um, and because the thing I know, I've got um, sort of 18 and 20 year old children, and whenever I mention anything about digital or technology, they just roll their eyes at me. So go away, mom, you're really old. Um, um, and I say I'm, I'm not the right generation to be um, fixating on bits of technology. Um, I'm much more interested, as you say, in um, what we want to happen as these things evolve. And I suppose the thing that I have been thinking a lot about is what um, is how artists are um, very often standing against the corporatization of technology and the control of data technology in all the forms. And I think 
there is a very productive space to be explored there where we at like at the Guggenheim Tate has time-based media curators and conservators who were thinking about the the future problems of the the technologies that are being used by artists at the moment and also the future possibilities in how we allow them to evolve particularly when that's what artists wish to happen and I think within the museum's world there's a possibility that we could protect freedom in that realm which to me is very important as for the digital my kids call me hashtag old man so I um, keep buying carrier pigeons and I'm a happy person for it um, <laughs> thanks again Maria thanks again Nancy and thanks again for coming here This program was brought to you by Soul House and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Thomas Gers, in charge of cultural engagement at the BMW Group and part of that amazing initiative of Soul House and BMW to bring arts and design to the forefront of discussions. Tonight we featured director of Tate, Maria Balshaw, and Guggenheim Foundation artistic director, Nancy Spector from New York, with an introduction by Kate Bryan, head of collections at Soul House.